Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Tom Guo, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you so much, Paul, for having me. I guess we should start with how you and I uh, know each other. We uh, we have really fascinating lives at um, the same company. We work exactly. at the same company. We don't have to get into any details, uh, other unless you want to. Um, but let's just say you have a highly technical background, which we can explore if that's where we uh, want to go. And I have a uh, decidedly non-technical background. Yeah, I think I think I think that's. I, I don't actually know if that's true. I, I've never asked that question of you, but <laughs> I mean, uh, very simplified. I basically handle a lot of internal applications for our internal teams uh, at the company we both work at, Qualify, um, mainly for sales, operations, and marketing. And yep. that's primarily on the Salesforce platform, and that's where my expertise lies. So pretty, pretty straightforward from that perspective. Yeah, I think both the uh, sales team and the operations team are very glad that you exist at Qualify. <laughs> Much appreciated. Cool. All right. So I think part of my reasoning, well, a couple of things. I wanted to talk to you because you're a decent, thoughtful guy and who doesn't like talking to decent, thoughtful people. Uh, but you also have a, a background that I don't think I'll ever stumble into anybody with a similar background is yours. And so let me, let me say what I mean. You are Chinese ethnically. Mm -hmm. You were born and raised or just raised in South Africa? It's a bit complicated, but let's get into it. We got about an hour. So let's, we got let's about an hour. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll, and I'll actually go back to say to, you said like, you don't think you'll ever meet someone like me, but I, I disagree. I think the world is changing a lot and I've met more people like me than I, than I realized. Okay. And, um, at, at the core of it, I don't think my story is that unique, honestly. Um, uh, so you're talking to a guy from central Virginia, Tom, and when I meant unique <clears throat> for you, I also meant the qualifier of you moved to, uh, the U S as a teenager for a sport. Like once you throw that in there, I think it, it makes you pretty darn unique. Oh, well, we'll get, we'll get into that. Sure. So, um, I tell people I was born and raised in South Africa because, uh, if I tell them I was born in a country inside South Africa called the Sutu, it kind of wrangles their brain. <laughs> and for most people, they mispronounce Lesotho as Lesotho, but Lesotho, um, is, the I think one of the one of the few countries that are, is completely surrounded by another country. I think the other one is the Vatican. Yep. And uh, Lesotho is a country. It's it's formally known as the Kingdom of Lesotho, and it's known for two things: it's it's agriculture economy and diamonds. Some hmm. of the biggest diamonds in the world are mined there. So, and I think if my memory presents itself, it's basically has a patch of South Africa where they get fresh water for like mining rights as well. Wow. Um, so my parents moved from China to Lesotho as part of kind of like a government relationship pact mm. back in the eighties. And I just, I think this was to foster 
relationships between the two countries. And this was right when China was opening up. I think it was like Mao, Mao dies, country opens up, and they realize we can't, we need to foster better relationships so that the economy uh, does better. And so somehow both my parents didn't know each other, met in Lesotho, both are wow. Chinese. Um, and what is it like? A few years later, I'm born into in, in Lesotho. And from there, the jump to South Africa is an interesting jump because, um, as you say, I'm Asian. That's that's most people have the assumption like, oh, you're Asian, you must be from Asia. But I'm like, oh yeah, kind of my background is really just uh, South Africa. And so, um, like during the year 1990 or 1991, I forget, um, Lesotho went through a period of big xenophobia. Mm. So rushed, like coursed through, like there were huge um, riots. People were going through the streets, um, like smashing windows, store windows and whatnot. And at the time, my dad, who had, who was basically working for, like works with the queen of Lesotho. And she basically said, Michael, which is my dad's name. She's like, Michael, you need to leave. You need to take your family and leave. This is really not safe for you. And so um, she basically gave my dad a truck, like a little Nissan truck, like gave it to him and basically had the army escort us through to the border. And that was our entrance into South Africa. That's unbelievable, Tom. And shame on me for not knowing that about you, because that's that's an incredible story. I'm having a tough time wrapping. So he worked for the queen. He, he worked for the, for the Chinese government and basically uh, had through that had a relationship with the wow. family. And at some point he was, they were just like, this is not a tenable situation for you guys. This is like personal safety hazard. So um, yeah, so that's how we entered South Africa. <laughs> so how old were you when that ha happened? I was about one. So you don't have memories of it, I imagine. No, no, no. A lot. It's funny. Like I would say the story, the story of my life is like the story of my parents, obviously, <laughs> like just doing the kind of just like throwing themselves into just this unknown, like going to a different country and whatnot and basically trying to make the best of the situation. So kind of those early years. So is really their story, you know? Like, it's fascinating to see the, like, especially f uh, from where I am sitting right now, like, I'm in DC, I have a really good quality of life. Um, I, have a, I have high education, uh, my wife's a lawyer. And just to see that trajectory of our lives, because the moment they crossed the border, they had like, and I think in those days, like $10 to their name, and basically a truck which is probably more than most people have, honestly. Mm -hmm. But um, they basically went from that to um, like, then they started selling fruit at the, on the side of the road, you know? Then they, then they started an import-export business. And then they were able to send their children there. So I'm, I'm one of three kids to one of the best schools in South Africa. And then also fund schooling 
in in America. So I think it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of amazing what they've been able to accomplish. It's unbelievable, right? Imagine what your parents were thinking as they were driving into South Africa with ten dollars and and that truck. Um, and and they it sounds like they they're fantastic parents, right? Not uh, I mean I think every let me let me be careful there. Most parents want nothing but the best and they will do anything they can to uh, realize that. Uh, but that the level of change that your parents experienced as parents of very young kids mm-hmm. to what you guys were doing by the time you were teenagers is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> it's funny you said that because I think as we get older, we, like we started re- recognizing that our parents aren't perfect human beings. Um, and it's funny, yeah, as, as, as I get older, the more I think that's the case because they throw problems into my lives. But I think maybe their strengths um, in like really pushing for everything for their children is maybe like, is, te- is definitely what set me up for everything that I have right now. So. Yeah, I, I know you're, you're, a grateful person. Um, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear that part of your story, Todd. That's, uh, it's unbelievable. So can we go back to the, to the xenophobia? Was that something that was unique to Lesotho at the time? Or I imagine there was some of that in South Africa as well. Uh, I don't actually know. Like I, I probably misspeak about the topic, honestly. Um, but I don't think that's something that's, it's particularly unique especially um especially as an asian person um i think like a lot of time like xenophobia is is experienced everywhere and i think back then it was still the same and even growing up in south africa i mean i mean south africa is known for apartheid and like the division and um even now when i go back to south africa you you didn't you still are you, being Asian is very very like shocking for whatever reason, um, but yeah, xenophobia still exists everywhere. Yeah, I imagine when you were a kid, you 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 constantly felt like and were reminded that you were Asian and uh, didn't look like uh, most of the folks you encountered, and you. And you grew up with, I imagine, a, a culture that was different than the typical culture back then for South Africans. Yeah, yeah. I grew up during a, a weird time. So um, when I was first eligible to go to school, uh, let's just say like grade grade one or grade zero is what we call it. I, I don't, I'm not actually quite familiar with the elementary middle school um, here in the States as, as much. Kindergarten was, I think, was what we call it, yeah. Yeah, so uh, right when I was eligible to do that, uh, we were in the capital uh, at that time, a city called Pretoria in South Africa. And so my parents took me, so at that time, schools were divided into Afrikaans schools, so the white schools and your regular schools where everyone would, everyone technically could go, but it was a division of black and white. And so um, when I was taken to the schools, I basically wasn't, the white schools wouldn't take me and the, and the black schools wouldn't take me. What? It was just like, where do you fit on the spectrum? You know? Um, 
and it's and it's weird because because my so if we back up a few years, my parents who were really busy trying to make a living had taken me had like we had a neighbor, we had two neighbors, um, husband and wife, who basically were retired and they took me in to just take care of me during the day. And that's how I know how to, like, they taught me how to speak Afrikaans, which is the native white language, which is like, it's almost like a derivative of Dutch. Mm. And so one of the requirements to get into the Afrikaans school was you needed to speak Afrikaans. And I spoke Afrikaans, like better than I spoke English. So they were like, yeah, but he's not, he doesn't really fit the, he doesn't really fit the, (laughs) what, what we want. And then I went to the last and they were like, and his English isn't up to par. <laughs> so they were like, okay, what do we do with this kid? <laughs> so at the time, um, there was this school that had just opened out, so opened up called uh, Crawford Preparatory School. And Crawford, um, previously Carmel, uh, is, is uh, like, has Jewish origins. Mm. So basically my entire time in South Africa, I went to a Jewish school and that was because that was the only institution that would have me. Because the Afrikaner wouldn't take you, the white school wouldn't take you, the black school wouldn't take you. Exactly. Exactly. And at least in the area that I was in. And so you spoke Afrikaners English and was there Mandarin spoken? At yeah, any, I, any I spoke Mandarin because of my, uh, of my parents. And then later on, uh, I kind of just, got more, more like African languages, but those are my three primary languages growing up. And they couldn't be any more different than each other. Right. I mean, they're, they're really, they're really couldn't, Right. I mean, like Afrikaans and English, you can probably like see similarities, but yeah, they're at, at their core, very different. That, that is wild. Do you speak all three today? I only, only English and Chinese is what I still speak. I think I've like, I officially left South Africa probably like almost 20 years ago now. So, um, I can still understand it, but I, when I try speaking it, it's like, I'm like, oh boy, it's not, it's like, I think it's like, you don't use it, you lose it kind of thing. Yeah. So. All right. So you end up going to Crawford is the name of it. Yeah, exactly. You end up going to Crawford. Uh, what was that experience like? Crawford was, I only have fun memories of it, honestly. Like, I think it was maybe the best of, of the worlds that I encompassed at the time. I never really, I shouldn't say I never really felt outside or excluded. Um, but I felt the most accepted where like anywhere as I could be, you know, given, given that time. Were you the only Asian kid your age at Not that at school? All. Not at all. Okay. I mean, it was, we had, like Crawford was, was cool because it had the Jewish kids. It had, it had the, I, I should, I should categorize this as Crawford is not a cheap school in South African terms. Mm-hmm. Like my parents paid a lot more money to send me there, but that was like their only option. So you had uh, the Jewish kids, uh, you had the white kids. Like and they were all from pretty affluent families, given the situation, and the and the African kids as well, and then there are a handful of Asian kids as well. Um, so not really, 
pretty diverse crowd. And then all the all the diplomats, so we would send their kids there as well. So very diverse crowd. D diverse uh, ethnically, but maybe not so diverse socio socioeconomically or economically. It sounds like it. I would say so. That's that's probably correct. Yeah. Have you ever asked your parents uh, why they stayed? Are they there now? Uh, yeah, they're still there. My brothers are still there. Did you ever ask them why they didn't go somewhere else? You mean, you mean like move to another part of Africa or move to Europe or Asia or wherever? I have no idea, actually. Um, you mean, uh, you mean like the decision to leave after they, they went to Africa, right? Well, I mean, they go to South Africa, just happened to be uh, the country that surrounded the country they went to in the first place. It's, it's it's happenstance, right? I mean, they it's, it's happenstance, but it's also at a time like when we look at China right now, it's like it's not the China of like 30, 40 years ago. Mm. You know, China was a very different place back then. And to them, it was I think it was like, OK, we can make a life for ourselves here. And um, my dad, I think my dad is uh, from a family of like. So he's he's the oldest male in his family, which which puts him in like a vaulted stat status and one of responsibility. And he has five other siblings. Mm. And so he was able to during this time not only make a living support us, but also send money back home. Oh wow. So there was there was a lot of opportunity, I think, from his perspective. Okay. And yeah, that makes sense. And I think over time, it's just something that's just like, I often now nowadays, my, my dad is like, pretty much retired at this point. And I ask him, like, why don't you why don't you leave? And he always gives me like weird responses, etc. But I don't think he can actually leave. He's so ingrained into his expectations of what a house looks like in South Africa, like his access to the different things that are available in South Africa, you just wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. Like my dad is very, he likes having very like high quality food at, at his, at his hands. So he can literally go to the, the local supermarkets and he usually goes to the wholesalers because I don't know, that's what he does. And he's able to get like just the freshest fruit. Mm at bargain prices and he'll he constantly reminds me like for the for the price i paid for one mango he has a, he literally has an entire box of mangoes back home <laughs> and they're and they're their their tier is so much better so it sounds like uh he it's familiar uh he's he's i imagine this is true for your mom as well they they figured out how to to make a good uh life for themselves and yeah why why change that yeah, yeah, I think there there is an element of that, and then um, there is this, also this pull that you're just like, but like things change, you know, like uh, countries change, they become unstable, and then you kind of have to leave. Yeah. So that's that's the current pull that we're trying to like get my my family out of the country. <laughs> is it is it unstable today? I haven't been following. I'd say I'd say it's pretty um, unstable. I was there in December, and I go, I tend, I try to go back every four years or not. But this was the longest stint that I had been. I hadn't been back for about seven years, and 
seven, I think like seven years ago, they had just, South Africa had just instituted this program where they were basically instituting uh, mandatory power outages every day. Wow. So it was like, it was like, yeah, no big deal. Half an hour here, half an hour there. Um, and it seems like every year they've instituted a, la a layer of outages higher. And I think now they're at something called like tier six or something, which is basically 12 hour outages every day. And I'm just like, guys. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, not the, that's not the developed world, right? The developed world has power 24 hours a day. Exactly, exactly. And I was like, what, you, when does the other shoe drop, you know? Like, I, I understand, like, people can, like, people are very, very resilient and can kind of deal with anything. But I feel like given, given our opportunities and what we have, we, we can probably ask for something better, especially for them long term. Yeah. Have they visited you here? Yeah, they have. Yeah. So they have a general feel for the place, but they don't know what it's like to live here for six months or three years or. A, a yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. And um, yeah, and it's always funny uh, seeing media portrayal of the states in every other country. Like if you look at how the states is portrayed it, and we're not we don't we were not we should not go in to get into this because it's, it's off topic. But it's, it's very funny for me that the way South Africa portrays what the U.S. is like, what China portrays the U.S. is like, it's like two, you're describing completely two different countries. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's hilarious seeing the differences and the focuses. So with instability uh, comes, I imagine, pretty high crime rates. That alone would, would cause me to want to uh, seek another place to live. That, that's, not, that's not enough to get your parents to seriously think about leaving? I don't know. I mean, I mean, um, high crime rates. Well, let me, let me take a step back. It's like high crime rates have always been a thing. I, the, the, one of the defining characteristics of South Africa is that every house, almost every house has a wall around it, like a big fence for security. For security and like the um, the house I grew up when, when I was young um, had we had a huge wall surrounding our, our property, um, not only barbed wire but an electric fence on top of that. So that was a that was normal. That was completely normal. And then if you were really really and and then also it's like every single house is armed with like like uh, armed response like. And it's like, how fast can that armed response get to you? Is it like, is it like a minute, 10 minutes? That's, that's something that you look for when you look for like armed security or like just a security system. Yeah. That, that doesn't translate in America. Yeah. That doesn't translate. And I think that's just, that has to be explained when you go visit South Africa, be like, Hey, why does everyone have a wall around their house? You know? Um, but I mean, I think at least when I was there, I don't know if it's the way right now. Actually, I, I do know, but the unemployment rate has always been stupidly high yeah. for a, what are you called, like the most developed country in Africa. So I think it's like officially, well, I remember it being like somewhere like 30% officially. And then unofficially, it's probably higher at like 40, 42% wow. or something. 
and then you have that and then you have the issue of like be, it being bordered by countries that have a, are in a worse economic position so you have a lot of inflow of uh people who don't have jobs coming from those countries into a country where the job opportunities aren't that much so how else how else do you make a living other than turn to crime in a lot of those situations so yeah i you and i have lived fortunate lives to date it sounds like and uh yeah but if i needed to feed my kids or feed myself yeah i i would commit crimes to feed them yeah and i think the other the other piece of your question was like why don't they leave it's probably because they're um at least for my parents they know they can make a life there they know their um areas where they're competitive and what they would consider a, a return on their time is probably greater there than anywhere else i think my understanding of like pairs that aren't as uh stable is that there is this element of the greater the risk the greater the reward mm. um, so like yeah, yeah like we're we're happy in the states if we can get like I don't know like three percent return. Well, what is the Bank of America pays like no interest on your accounts? Yeah, you know, like there it's like eight, seven, eight percent. I don't know. I don't think that's actually aligns with it because that's that's a lot of different. There's a lot of different nuances there. Yeah, that that's probably you could write a thesis on that topic. Probably the the how the different economies of the world function and how they play with each other as mm -hmm. well uh all right so when you were at crawford and you went there grade zero through right right through when i came to america so grade grade 10. Grade so 10. a sophomore year 10th grade Got it. so you were there for a long time uh you said the mm -hmm. experience was wonderful were, were you thinking the people that you went to school with were you thinking academics were you thinking athletics were you thinking other things that were available at crawford that weren't available at the other schools what, what was in your head when you said it was a good experience? Uh, it was a good experience just because, like, I got to do what I got to do. And looking back, I had great teachers, some of the best teachers of my life. Um, yeah. I mean, education was extremely solid. I had made some really good friends yeah there's it's hard there was really no negative experience in that in in there so um were athletics important yeah athletics is all i i should i yeah athletics is always very important um i think in south africa there are the sports the sports where you can walk uh, the things that are are very focused upon are rugby and cricket nowadays it's a bit different um at crawford it was particularly cool because we had um a bunch of like the swimming program was in, insane mm. um like we had a bunch of people that i that i grew up who i, I know like who went to the olympics or went to the olympic trials and there's this guy named cameron van der Berg, who basically is like the face of that program and has is a is an olympian and i think has won medals as well wow. so um yeah sports are incredibly important and i think um kind of 
going back the going back to like fitting in and whatnot like i'm by nature kind of a shy shy guy don't really like like was never part of a household where you like spoke your opinions and whatnot um so the way to be for me who's kind of just like asian amongst who is a bit different to begin with the kind of the way to kind of and it's funny the way i rationalize it but the way to kind of be accepted was to kind of just excel at things and that's probably a, a very typical um manner in which you think you might get accepted um so it was like academics and tennis for me that was kind of like the way <laughs> I, I i feel like i got some like small street cred at the school <laughs> oh i imagine you did um yeah I, a lot of kids who feel like they don't fit in but then really focus on a couple of things uh tennis and academics in, in your case uh did you were you accepted or fit in uh more thoroughly and and easily through tennis or, or through academics honestly i probably was known more for my academics at the school because tennis, the tennis program at the school was pretty weak to mm. begin with. So a lot of my tennis activities happened outside of the school. Uh. And um, like people knew I played tennis and whatnot, but it was, it was the academic achievements they saw. Um, and that didn't really, like the academics didn't really ramp up. I think when I was like in sixth grade or something, I, I kind of just made a decision. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna take this seriously for whatever reason. I, it, it, it probably was something silly. I saw, I saw like the award ceremony one day and I got, and I got kind of jealous. I was like, I want to be like that one day. That's why they have those award ceremonies. I know. Right. I know. And, um, that's literally, I think like from sixth grade until like the moment I left, I kind of was just like on a mission to just like do really well in academics. And so like, um, I think like, it's funny, my, my mom, one of my mom's proudest moments is when literally, uh, in seventh grade, they had basically this, they, they basically had the thing and seventh grade is, I think the delineator between for us, between like middle school and high school, like eighth grade is when high school starts. And I basically just walked across the station, took pretty much every award <laughs> and she was like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, and I was, I was really ecstatic, but on the flip side of that, I think I just got really burnt out trying so hard for at, at such a young age. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's great that you won all the awards, but it, it, there was a cost, right? There's a definite cost. There's a definite cost because, um, I don't think, uh, and actually my wife and I were talking about this. I don't think it's healthy for kids to have that much pressure on them at such a young age it fosters i think it fosters like the sense of like almost like being timid to like try new things or like learn for the sake of learning and so honestly i honestly i if i had to say for a reason i think that's like i think by 10th grade i was pretty burnt out mm. like after like based trying to maintain that level for a couple of years I think I, that was what was like pushing me to be like, I need to change. I need to do something else. And that was like the impetus for me to like seek something 
uh, difference. And being the shy kid I was, obviously, I, I didn't ask around. I, like, I, I wanted a chin, and I knew I'd, I'd always wanted to go to America. I don't know why that thought was in my brain. Hmm. But I was like, oh, yeah. And it's probably just because, like, my dad had once probably said, like, oh, you know, the next step is America. Like, that's that's where that's where you should go though. That's where the best universities are. And probably like every other Asian kid, Harvard is on the picture, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, Harvard does a great job with their uh, branding for sure. There's no question. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so it, I, I, I imagine it's probably an offshoot of, of that, that made that kind of the seed of, of America is the next step. And how that conversation came about was um well hey before we go there tom mm -hmm. tennis how, how old were you when you started i started when i was like seven six and a half did you find tennis or did uh, your parents find tennis for you tennis was an was one of the offered extracurricular activities after school okay by the school by the school by the school and then at what point did you or your parents realize you were uh good enough to have extra training never <laughs> you, did have, you did have outside of school tennis or yeah no, no i did i did I, I don't think i i don't think we ever i don't think there was a point where i um we the way you asked the question there was never a point where we we're like oh he's pretty good at tennis we should get him lessons it, it was more like uh, I really loved playing tennis mm -hmm. and there was this, like all the, all the other kids at school were getting coached by this guy, uh, at the tennis courts, um, and you do private lessons. And it took me, I think like six months or something to muster the courage to ask my dad oh, if wow. he would be able to, um, pay, like pay money for those private lessons. Because I mean, like I went to a risk school, but I, definitely wasn't rich. Like my parents were like, basically, uh, like the, we were, we were definitely the poorest, poorest family there. And they basically, um, like it'd be kind of, I have this memory of like, all the kids would pick, pick me up, all the, all the kids would be picked up and my, and they'd be have really fancy cars. And my dad would be still driving the, what in South Africa we call a Bucky. But it's just it's just like a truck. Was, he still had, he drove the same Bucky that the uh, the Queen had given him. <laughs> and and now I'm like, oh, dude, that is so badass. But like back then, as a kid, you don't know any better, you know. Um. Anyway, so tennis. He so I asked my dad, like, can I get lessons with this guy? And uh, that's like he's basically said yes, and that started the course of like allowing me to improve in a sport that I like love deeply. And so over time, um, I was introduced to like, oh, here's a here's a provincial team or what we call a state team. Like, can you let's see if you can play? Uh, can you play on, on that team? And the and I will have to say, I have to copy out this like. I was absolutely garbage at tennis, like compared to everyone else. The only thing going for me um, at the time was uh, I was Chinese in, in their eyes, not African. Mm. And back then when apartheid happened or like when it, when it came off apartheid, every single provincial team and national team 
required for there to be two diversity candidates, if you will, oh. of a six-person team. So me and my friend Sunday, his name is Sunday, became part of the diversity teams at both the provincial level and the national level. So that that's how I, who definitely wasn't on par with everyone else, <laughs> got a foot into playing highly competitive tennis. And when you start at a young age and you suck, it doesn't matter. You're getting a lot of experience. Yeah, it's on. And and I think and I and I think like I, I was telling someone the other day I was like I think for the first season I lost every match mm. and it was bad. That's hard. But like, but like you can only get better and like put in enough situation you're forced to get better. And so by the time I was like, like what 10, 11, 12, I was like pretty beastly given just like part of the system every year you do the same thing you have no option but to be better. So you got a lot better. So when you were younger, it sounds like you loved tennis from the beginning. Mm -hmm. What was it about tennis that uh, was attractive to you? Just the, that's, that's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever been posed it that way. It, well, it's an individual sport, right? And so there's something to, individual sports that team sports don't have you can't rely on other people to pick you up you have to pick yourself up i don't know like it's like asking for me it's like asking the question like why do why do why why do kids like um like little car toys that roll around you know maybe some part of me as a six-year-old just looked at them bouncing the ball up and down like when you start learning tennis you basically have slow racket and they're basically like see how many times you can like um uh, keep the ball up hmm. and just that moment of magic you're just like wow this is this is kind of cool and then like being able to play against someone and like maybe being a bit better than others that makes you like feel like oh yeah i like this sport like i think it was probably just happenstance that um i just chose i like picked that as my extracurricular extracurricular activity yeah. and went with it but yeah, I, I, I kind of think like there are things in my life that are, I just consider magical and it's very hard to describe. And it yeah. may be just that it's this enamorment of like the simple, like the movement, um, the competitiveness, and just probably I saw someone do it beautifully mm. at some points. So, Beauty and magic, what's not to like? I know, right? All right, so so you became basically uh... – after not winning a game your first season or a match your first season, uh, were you and you were on the national team? Yeah, national team, touring, touring, touring the country, if you will. Touring, so touring, touring Africa, I should say. You're touring the entire continent. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about. Uh, and you had started going down this path. Tell me the story of uh, going to America. Like, what, what? What was happening uh, in your mind and with your family and all of that, and what led you to finally actually make the move? Because you were young, right? You were fifteen. Yeah, yeah. When you actually moved. Yeah, yeah. Or I think for I think the decision to apply was made when I was fourteen, um, and it really was just happenstance. It was like 
I was at this point where I was kind of burnt out from my, my studies, trying, just working and totally my problem, my fault. Like, I don't know, like people are like, oh, do your parents put a lot of pressure on you? And they're like, and like my parents didn't put any pressure on me, uh, which is, which is, I think interesting for an Asian family. And my brothers don't get, did not get that same treatment for whatever reason. They had a lot of pressure put on them. Um, do should we explore that, Tom? I, I, I that's a, that's a complicated conversation, and I feel like we've got, I feel like this conversation has gone in many little tangents. <laughs> that's what happens on this podcast. It's all good. Um, but yeah, I was I just got to a point where I was kind of burnt out, and I feel I felt like I needed some type of escape, and. I think and it all bubbled up and I, I was telling I was saying this earlier, of course I didn't know what the options were. And my mom who um I should I should say that my mom basically during basically her, her sole thing from like she just basically devoted her entire life to me from like the moment I was born, <laughs> like from like age six onwards. Like she would take me to practices, she would wait for me, and she would watch all my matches. So completely devoted mom. And one one evening, my mom, so they I, I'm sure they have it here. They have like parents' night where you go to, where your parents go talk to the teachers and they say how how well you're doing and what things they're having trouble with. And somehow I think my mom's superpower is not being afraid to ask silly questions or just ask anything, even if it makes even even if at that young age, you're like, mom, that is the most embarrassing thing to ask. And she just asked, like, do you know, she, I think she asked my history teacher, or maybe even every teacher she talks about, do you know how to, how to send my kid to America? And it, like, and one of the teachers basically was like, actually, I do. Um, I sent a brother and a sister to uh, a school called Choate Rosemary Hall, like basically like four years ago. And that's that started the process of me applying to Choate because at Choate, there is this history of every four years, there being a South African at on campus. And I think it's tied to just some, some previous um, alumni having set up a, a fund to basically fund like that being a requirement to have that donation always exist. So, um, Chotes, I mean, I, I'm not up to date on uh, rankings of boarding schools, but Chotes definitely a brand name. Yeah, I I did not know this back then. I think this was just kind of like happenstance, but. Um, yeah, Chode is a big brand name. It's known for back in the day that um, all the Ivy Leagues would have high schools that were basically like feeder schools mm. to them. So like Chode, Rosemary Hall. Chode used to be two two schools. It'd be a boys' school, Chode, and Rosemary Hall, the girls' school that came into one. Um, and they were a feeder school to Yale, much like I think either it's Phillips Exeter or Phillips Andover that's the feeder to uh, Harvard or whatnot. I think Exeter is the feeder to Harvard. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I was introduced to that world, um, which was 
kind of an incredible opportunity. And I think academics was like, it was, I think it was um, like my tennis helped in getting in for sure. Um, but also the academics. So you, you kind of needed to like hit a certain, I think certain threshold to meet the criteria. So your mom was trying to send her oldest child to America. Why, what was it about America? Was it the educational opportunities? No, I think, I think, she, I think I had actually asked her like, I, like. Oh, so and, it was your idea and she was a supportive mom pushing for it. Yeah, I think, I think she, my mom and I have always been extremely close. And at the time she was, she could tell I was very unhappy and like kind of depressed. And mm. she was like, what's the, what's the problem? And I probably had just told her like, uh, you know, like kind of burnt out, very, very, very stressed. Uh, I'd like to like, maybe just go somewhere else. I think that would probably set things right. <laughs> and, um, she took that next step to ask, to ask the questions like, Hey, how do we, how do we have those next steps? You know? Uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine the, the pressure lessened or, or subsided going to choke. I, I would think there would be as much, if not more pressure academically anyway. It was just different, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. I probably change. I, pro yeah. I mean, I would say that the stakes were probably higher, but I think I it introduced me to such a different, such a different way of life. Like you go from almost like a day school environment where you're basically just being shepherded by your mom around all day. You go to school, you go do like your your serious tennis practices. You go home and then you study to an environment where it's you amongst 800, 800 kids and you are um, basically forced to interact with these kids and develop a very intense social life in there. And, and you were there 10th through 12th grade? Yeah, exactly. So three years. That, so. That's a hard time to change schools for anybody, but to be a Chinese kid from South Africa moving to Chotin, Connecticut. Exactly. Exactly. To, to an elite boarding school in America. I mean, I, how did your head wrap around your new? Oh, it, it, it was, it was messed up the first, it was like hard as hell. I was like, really, really, <laughs> I was really, really homesick the first year. Oh, I bet. And, and, and the decision was made. So the, the, the way the South African, um, academic school year is from January through December. So um, the decision was made for me to actually redo 10th grade because by the time mm. I was able to go to school in America, I was already halfway through 10th grade. So I was like, okay, let's restart 10th grade. So sophomore year and then do it. And which was the, which was a great decision. I mean, it would have been harder how to, had I gone as a junior, as a junior and had all the, crazy SAT, PSAT pressures put on me from that early on. Yeah. Well, and you're getting used to American culture. Well, and, and frankly, you're getting used to New England. Culture. New England culture. Exactly. Uh... <laughs> and, and you're talking about people at uh, Crawford driving nice cars. I can I imagine Chuck put that to a new level. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there was more like Chuck had more of a socioeconomic diversity, I should say, oh. like obviously still very high end, 
but like definitely more more people that I could basically be aligned with. Got it. So you you play tennis at Choate as well? I play tennis at Choate, yeah. Okay. All right, so Choate was a feeder school at Yale. I've never asked you this, and this is something I, I typically ask. Where did you go to college? I went to a small school called Clara McKenna College. Okay. Where, where is that? Clara McKenna College is in Southern California in a town called Claremont. Wait a minute. Do, do you – do you pick parts of the world that are just extremely different from the last place you lived? Honestly, <laughs> honestly, um, that I think that was actually part that was actually part of the decision to go to go somewhere new. It, it, like South Africa, the, the South Africa I grew up in was so sunny, like mm -hmm. it was really sunny. It was um, the air was really dry, and that's just what I knew. And then going to like New England, where you basically could have four seasons in one day at any moment and it's humid and it's and it's just like, I think at the end of it, I was like, this is great, but I'm going to go somewhere where I think like I'll have sunlight at a reasonable rate. So um, that was definitely one of the factors. Uh, but Clever McKenna is known for a, a few things, but people most mostly know it because of it's a consortium. It's one of the few consortiums where there are five schools there, Pomona, Pitzer, Harvey Mudd, um, Harvey Mudd, Scripps, and then Claremont. They combine to form this consortium. And it's the only school I know, only five schools that I know that literally they are separated by streets. Hmm. Like you can, you can pass into Pomona's campus by just crossing a street. And you can actually go to, you can take courses at any of the colleges and they're independent colleges. You can also, if you, you could actually graduate with an, a degree from another college as well. That's wild, right? That, that's not typical. It's, it's very atypical that I've come to know. And I don't know, I, for me, I think it was maybe not the best choice in schools to make. But um, I should caveat that honestly, graduating in the financial crisis was not also not the best. It wasn't that great for um, in terms of like scholarships opportunities. Like I kind of got a um, a free ride to go to Choate. I did not get a free ride to go like to go elsewhere afterwards. <laughs> well, I mean. A consortium, are, are you paying like private school? Were, the, were all those private schools or were they state schools? They're all private school. So you're paying, you're paying the whatever, whatever, whatever ridiculous cost it is right now. It's like probably like 55, 60K is what it is. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's an expensive small private school. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what were the benefits of the consortium? Were, were the schools wildly different in your experience? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Harvey Mudd. Har so, if Claremont is known for economics, like economics, finance, consulting, like it's very much like um, it sets you up to be successful in those fields. <laughs> um, Harvey Mudd is one of the top engineering schools in the country. I think um, so. They only, I think, they only have like six or seven majors. And there's like mechanical engineering, engineering, computer science, physics, or something, something like that. And I think when I graduated, like Harvey Mudd basically had the best 
return on investment <laughs> out of any school in the country. I think like the average, the average starting salary was like, like really high, like the highest of any school in the U.S. Yeah, Harvey Mudd has a national reputation amongst engineers anyway. Yeah. And then Pomona has always been one of the top liberal arts schools just for its the way it conducts itself. So um, that's, I, it probably doesn't hurt that like they lure you in to go to this thing called Ski Beach Day, which is basically you go skiing in the morning and then a bus takes you to the beach in the afternoon because of the location where the, the, the colleges are, you can do both. So uh, how, how far from LA? How far from that? Probably like 40 minutes, an hour. Depends okay. on, so not too far. So almost basically Metro LA, it sounds like. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's wild. Uh, ski in the morning and, and do whatever people do at the beach in the afternoon. That's, uh, that's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, no, it's when you're when you when you're 18 years old and you, or 17, whatever age you go to college, that sounds great, man. And also the quality of life that like my wife who went to Penn. So we, my wife and I met in high school at Choate and then we decided to like go to separate uh, schools. She came to visit me a lot uh, during those years and she would start crying on the way back because like, like we had world class food at the dining halls. Like it was unreal. We had uh, like fresh smooth smoothies, everything. It was like the quality of life was almost like too good. <laughs> Where she would go back to her 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 dorm and her her life at Penn and be like, "Wow, what am I doing here?" <laughs> well, so uh, did did you? I have a lot of questions about your college experience. Does your diploma say Clara McKenna, or does it say Harvey Mudd? No, it says no, no. My my, I actually graduated with um, a degree in economics. Oh, I thought you you would have been computer science or something like that. No, no, no. Just so you, you, it says Claremont. It says Claremont. Yeah. Okay. I took right. I, I did a bunch of coursework at Harvey Mudd for the computer science, but at the end at the end of it, basically chose to go econ. Okay. Which is a, a science, but I've heard people call it the dark science because it's not quite uh, as clear as other sciences, maybe. I probably agree. Um, yeah, the economics I learned was almost like mathematics. Ah. It's like heavy mathematics. So a lot, lot of lot of stats, a lot of math. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, why was the food so spectacular? Just because the administration cared so deeply about nutrition and great tasting food for the students? That's it's unusual. Most most yes yes. I have never gone to a place where where there's like spit roast, there's like different stations. Um, there's lobster on like special occasions. It's kind of insane. Like it, it like I'll, I'll say it up to people and people just won't, won't believe me, but you kind of have to see it to believe it. And then the only way I can tell the only story that people believe is like, I had friends who would come visit me in college and they would come visit me multiple times just for the food. So <laughs> I, I I don't know what to make of that because every college campus I've ever eaten at is nowhere near what you're describing. Yeah. And, and I mean, and it, it's enhanced for sure because you like each campus generally has about two or three dining halls. 
and then you times it by five. So you have 15 different options to go for. And each one is just as good. There, there had to be somebody who was unbelievably dedicated that oversaw those 15. A hundred percent. And then um, we had this thing at the Claremont called the Athenaeum that basically brought in speakers um, every day of the week to just speak to the class, to, to whoever wanted to sign up. And you could, you could each, any student could basically sign up for the talk and it'd go from like six to 8 PM every night. So, and I work, I used to work there like doing a few shifts to, uh, to make some money, but then the food there served was just, it was like basically a sit down dinner that they brought up three courses. How did was- you, how did you discover, uh, this consortium? <laughs> Well, at Choate, they basically, when you go through the college application process, they're like, they basically ask, and the college council is doing a phenomenal job. Um, so they basically said, hey, and you probably know this, this is like, you need to set, you need to select a few safeties, you need to select a few reaches, and then like moderates. And based on my personality and like everything the counselor knew about me, they're like, you pro-, like, they asked me questions like, what do you want? And I, I think my answer was probably like moderate weather, good weather. And they just said, you should consider the, the consortium. And Clement was a safety. So uh, it was one of those years where I applied to everything. Um, I think we were limited to, I think 10, 10 schools, which we could apply to. And I only got into safeties, didn't get into any moderates or like reaches. College admissions are weird, man. They're, they're, hey, man. they're cyclical and they're just weird. But I mean, like, would I change it? Probably not. If I had like. Well, I, I have uh, three kids that 17, 19 and 21. So two are in college right now. And mm-hmm. I said, you, you, you your college education, the actual education is entirely about you and the effort you put into it now mm-hmm. schools have brands right and and yep you're paying a lot of money to to have a harvard degree and you're getting a, a fantastic education there but you're also getting an unbelievable brand uh yep. but you can go to some school nobody's ever heard of and, and have a, an actual fantastic education 100 100 percent. did you know the food was going to be amazing uh before you applied <laughs> no no um it's it's interesting to me that um, I th- I didn't even visit Claremont before I went for the first day, and it's the same thing with Choate. Like there was just like buy a plane ticket, you're going to the school, and you show up. Well, the internet existed, right? You're, you're the not- internet existed, obviously, no. but like doesn't really describe it. Yeah, being physically there is different than seeing a picture on. Uh- yeah yeah exactly and like just being able to chat with students and whatnot and a part of me probably was just not that interested to do that it was just like i was just like i've done this before i can like save the money we'll just go right we'll just go first day did you feel like you fit in there pretty quickly yeah i would say so like um i think at that point after having gone to choats um, I felt, I felt like I could fit in anywhere, honestly. Um, Cho- Cho's environment forces you to be social, which I probably lacked a bit of skills going mm-hmm. in. 
Um, but coming out, I was, I felt very comfortable. And I think that's the only thing that I would may change. I, I would probably change, uh, if I had to redo it because Cho was a school of 800 kids. Claremont was a school of 800 kids. Mm. It was a bit, it was a bit too comfortable. And I think there is an element of like, you should push yourself to grow in those, in those formative years a bit more. So yeah. that's the only thing that I would maybe suggest a bit different. Or like try to try 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 be a bit more uncomfortable during those years. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying, Tom. But my goodness, you were you went to Connecticut from South Africa. I mean, that you're putting yourself in an uncomfortable position. Uh, yeah, for, for the entire three years you were there, and then to go to Southern California from New England. I mean, that's an, another uncomfortable move. Yeah, no, I also think it's probably just like this this mindset when 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 you're when you're used to doing this, you're always critical. You're like, how could this be better? You're always thinking that. <laughs> That's fair. And at, at, a, at a certain age, you start realizing how ridiculous, like you you probably sound to the person who's listening to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, ridiculous wasn't the word I would have chosen, but yeah, I, th I think you're, uh, to, to reach a, a higher level of discomfort, you, you'd have to, be really, really creative. And I think you also mean within each week, within each month, uh, pushing yourself more and making yourself more uncomfortable, not just the bigger, big move from one location to the exactly. next. Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's different levels of uncomfort here, you know? Yeah, no doubt. All right. So did you play tennis at Claremont? Mm -mm. Did no. you want to play tennis at Claremont? Not really. Yeah. You were kind of done with tennis by the time you graduated? Yeah, it was, a lot of, it was a lot of pressure to perform, honestly. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I mistakenly, um, I mistakenly tried to basically say, I was like, no, I've never really not done a sport for mm. any time in my life. So let me try to do that freshman year in college. What a mistake. I think, yeah, like uh, I gained a bunch of weight <laughs> and had no, and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm a guy who really needs structure in my life. And so um, the following year, I basically uh, emailed the head coach of cross country. And I was like, hey, how do I, how do I make it on this team? <laughs> and he, he basically was like, can you run a mile like at this, at this pace? Can you do this? And I basically trained that entire summer to basically try to make the team and kind of crawled in. What you so, made? I made it, yeah. So, and then I basically ran cross country and track for the remaining three years of college. So you were like a mid-distance and, and longer distance guy? Yeah, yeah. Was I any good? Not at all. They, they, they used me as the, they used me as the, I, I like telling my friends, they used me basically as the rabbit for girls training. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody has their, their uses. No, but it, it, it definitely put a lot of structure that I needed during those years. Well, and you, you have to be in shape. If you're, you're going to run what, five, six, seven days a week, you're going to get in shape too. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So uh, what was the idea when you graduated college? What did you think you were going to do for a career? I graduated and I basically, I'd always wanted to start my own company hmm. and um, we, and Claremont has this, I think a great program where they basically set you up with a, um, a mentor in your sophomore year. 
you basically fill out like, what do I want to do when I graduate college? And they set you up with someone who's done that or is in that field. And so um, basically he and I started a company right after I graduated. Oh, wow. Or like during my school, my school years. What, what was the uh, company? What was the idea for the company? The idea for the company was pretty simple. Um, it was a um, a database that it was a database that basically kept track of personal information. So your so the the pitch was simple. It was like your everyone has pieces of information that they have everywhere. So their name, their phone number, their physical address, and over time, that, that's information changes. Wouldn't it be great to basically make sure like if you have your, your phone book in your phone, basically not, if you were to change a number that, that basically gets synced up to everyone. Mm. And, um, for the, the pitch to companies would be like, Hey, Costco, you send a lot of mail every, every year, 50% of that mail basically goes to an outdated address. Wouldn't it be great to basically have this database you could rely upon and sync it up? So at the core, that, that's the basic idea of it. Did you become profitable? No, not at all. Hard, right? Oh, gosh. It was like two years, two, two, three years of just extreme heartbreak and kind of learning, but mainly heartbreak. <laughs> and also, go ahead. What up? No, go go ahead. ahead. No, please. Oh, I was just going to say, it was like, and I was, I was also very young at the time. Mm. Like, I think, I think it's very, very, um, it's very impressive when a, when a person like just graduated from college is able to just make it like create their own company and make it successful. Because for me, like I, I looking back now, I, I suggested a few things and like, no, Tom, you should like, that made complete sense. You should have been more confident in your assertions. During those like stakeholder meetings, <laughs> yeah. So, Have you tried again since no, then? No, no, no. I basically closed down, closed that down, and basically I was like, "Well, Tom, you need to get a job." <laughs> <laughs> and that was my introduction introduction to Salesforce. Like, I found a job at a at a company that's built software on top of Salesforce. Okay, and kind of have been in that ecosystem ever since. Um, I'd like to try again so at some point, uh, but we'll see if that materializes. Well, you're, you're older and you're wiser. So, I mean, you, I would think you would stand a better chance the second time around. Yeah, it's a, it's a balance, right? It's like you're older, you're wiser. Uh, but I also think there is an element that you need to have of just being young and like, blind in a way and just rush for it head on because oftentimes if you know all the all the pain that you're going to suffer have to deal with you probably less you probably wouldn't go there yeah. in the first place and i think at as you get older you you consider you consider things a lot more and you start evaluating and sometimes the best approach is just to be like jump in yeah no that's right we we uh Many humans overthink. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and I and I, I was joking earlier today. I try to un underthink as much as I possibly can to avoid overthinking at all costs. 
hey man at, at, a, at a certain point yeah it has to happen otherwise nothing nothing gets done <laughs> right yeah that's right uh overthinking can lead to uh being, yeah being stuck mm-hmm. all right so uh i you're you've been all over the world mountain climbing can you tell me about all, all things mountain climbing and some of the coolest mountains you've climbed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I nowadays after nowadays I pretty much spend all my free time rock climbing. Um, I'm saying mountain. You're saying rock. What's the difference? Rock climbing is a very. I don't actually know. Like mountain climbing, I think has probably a few different variations of that. But in my understanding is that like there's like different classes of climbing. So like class one, class two, class three, class four. And I think once you get to class four, you start needing like protected your protection to ensure your safety. Whereas like a gentle stroll up the hill is probably considered class one scrambling or something. Uh, and I basically do a particular, I primarily only do just like rock climbing where it's category five i put my own protection in or i clip into production as i go up and it's something that i've probably dedicated the past 12 13 years to and um yeah have been able to it's a pretty small community overall who people who have devoted their entire lives to um just pursuing it so when I was in Connecticut, I made friends with this guy named Chris and Chris is known for spending his, like most of the routes in Connecticut, he, he put up. Oh, wow. So it's great to have a guy like that be your primary client partner and t- teacher as well. Mm. And so it's this little group of friends that I have in Connecticut and myself, and we've been able to re- really in recent years, just go all over the world and climb. So there are these, just these spots in the world. So like we've been to Spain, we've been to Greece, we've been to Cuba, um, to go climbing and a bunch of areas in, in, um, here in the States as well has just world class climbing. So yeah, it's well, since you mentioned Cuba, Tom, what was, what was it like being in Cuba? Uh, I guess trying to get there, being there. And then I, I didn't realize there was enough three-dimensional relief in Cuba to even climb. Cuba may have the most three-dimensional. Well, Cuba may have the most inspiring rock I've ever seen. And I think it's, a, unfortunately, there are so many restrictions to getting there. But um, I think that would, if, it, if it was easier, uh, it would be a world-class climbing spot. Yeah. Getting, getting what ahead. was it about that rock that was so uh unbelievable or or so enjoyable it's just unreal like imagine like a, a candelabra do you know you, you know what a kind like sure. and now imagine that that's just rock wow right it's yeah these that's incredible tufas that you're just that are just suspended in air and somehow attached to the wall. And that's wild. And you're like literally climbing up one of these things that has been shaped over millions of years and 
my understanding is at some point was was the ocean floor. <laughs> and, That's wild to think about. Yeah, and it's the only place where I literally am doing a split like hundreds of feet in the air because it's between two of these these huge limestone tufas. Wow. Um, and yeah, it's utterly insane. So when you were mentioning the classes earlier, what's the highest class? It's, it's tier five. It's what oh, it's tier five. Sorry. It's it, yeah. It's, it's what most, it's what, it's what people, when people look at like, um, most people know rock climbing because of like Alex Honnold's free solo movie. Yes. That guy's insane, by the way. My wife, my wife, my wife thinks the same. She's like, Tommy, you do realize he might, he's like kind of psychopathic. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I think he has to be. I, 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 well, she was more saying that about his relationship and whatnot, but, um, oh. or like, no, it's just like how he, how he um, processes information and whatnot and how he has like no risk receptors. But uh, that's, that's when you see people climbing Yosemite and whatnot, that's basically classified. Um, they put so in your protection and whatnot. You're a professional. I would say like high amateur. <laughs> well, but that's where I mean I, I don't know if there's such a notion of being a professional rock climber, but if there were, they're in tier five. Yeah, yeah, no, tier tier five for sure. And actually, it's recently that like it's only in like I would say the past decade where people have actually started like professional rock climbers mm. have been able to make like good, good money. You know, you have Alex Honnold who's like won an Oscar now for his short film. But then like uh, rock climbing has like for the first time was in the Olympics. Mm. Um, and then now like, it's funny, Japan, Japan has like some of the best climbing athletes in the world for whatever reason, even though they don't have any rocks there. But that's yeah, weird. Um, but some of their athletes are like some of some of the brands that are now sponsoring rock climbing athletes are high fashion brands. So your Gucci, your Cartier, it's, it's a new world. Didn't see that coming. I know. So so like I consider that to be professional, and for me, it's like a very personal passion project that I'd love to turn into like a full time thing. But I also really enjoy what I have right now. So. Yeah, I uh I mean when you say you're dedicating your free time to it, you obviously are uh in love with it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Every everybody should have something like that in their lives. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think something that like basically brings out makes you feel like there's ma there's some magic, you know? Yeah. No, I love it. That's awesome, man. Uh where's your next trip? Uh, this year, I've told all my friends I am going to stay local. So uh, there, so my 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 stomping ground is this place called the New River Gorge mm, yep. uh, in West Virginia, and then I'm going to go to the Red River Gorge in Kentucky later this year. So those are like probably some of the prime destinations here in the United States. For yeah, the new, new River Gorge, the the actual New River, mm -hmm. um, is known for. Uh, certain times of year known for amazing rafting and yeah kayaking. yeah yeah um so i i try to go there every other week now on the weekends 
that often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's the season for climbing. Well, uh, how long of a drive is it? It's five and a half hours. And you're doing that every other weekend? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it takes a bit of dedication. And, like, it's nice if you have a, a friend to, like, take turns driving the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're pretty erect after a full day of climbing. I bet. Um, yeah, no, next year we'll probably try to go to Sardinia. Um, um, I'd love to, I'd love to make Cuba, um, every year trip. I think just, I'm so ingrained in the community there and I love, I love what's being done there and also like, yeah. So that's probably going to become a mainstay. Very cool. Well, uh, we're at an hour, uh, mm -hmm. 16. Let, let's close by, uh, telling me a little bit more about your wife, how you guys met and what, what you guys are up to these days. Sure, sure. Uh, my wife and I met in in high school, so end of junior year, uh, we we basically made the poor decision to, uh, of not of getting together at a point where when you're not supposed to, <laughs> and then basically uh, have been together ever since. We we're long distance in college, which I think was a great thing, because otherwise we would have no lives outside each other but yeah. now we both have like an amazing like uh community of friends from those two institutions uh that we can lean on um yeah she's basically followed this path of basic of a, a legal career so after graduating she after graduating from penn she followed me to california where she got a job at google which is which kind of set her off on her path. Um, she does a lot of stuff under law enforcement requests. So a lot of these tech companies oftentimes request personal information from um, these tech companies. So law enforcement asks these requests and she basically responds to these requests. So she was in that capacity and that and that's just a major field. And so that led her to go to law school at Yale. Um, and now we're in DC where she's kind of, she was there, she was at a law firm for a couple of years and now she's going to the justice department. So oh, she's going to work for the feds. I know. Right. So she's, she's, she's doing an amazing job. Um, uh, she does not approve of the rock climbing. I should, I should caveat this. It sounds dangerous. <laughs> That's it's funny. That's like everyone's typical response, and I I completely agree. But you 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 like that aspect of it as well. The danger does something for you. No, no. I I think that's the wrong way of putting it, of looking mm. at it because, like, yeah, it's really scary. Like that's that's a possibility. But it's also one of the few things that is just like. I think I come keep on coming back to the like things that are just purely magical and just like send a tingle through your spine when you do it, mm. and like the prospect of just being up in the high up in the mountains, trying to go up this rock and almost like solving a problem section by section, in a very meditative like like trance, and just feeling just like almost completely free, is just is what's is what the magic is about for me. 
So you're thinking about the positive attributes of rock climbing and it just so happens that it's also dangerous. It's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It's dangerous. And I think oftentimes I like try to like ask my wife or like I debate with people. I'm like, you know, I would consider rock climbing to be less dangerous than like one of the most, one of the most dangerous things I do every day, which is driving my car around. That's probably right. And, um, so I don't know that that's a long thread, if you will. That's no, all good. Well, Tom, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, it was, I, it was really fun. Thank I you. I enjoyed for learning a lot more about you, man. Uh, I'm, I'm, I keep telling myself I'm, I'm too old to do something like rock climbing or name another 10 things that are highly physical, but I, I imagine they would, even in a limited, slow, easy way it's probably something i i could uh get into definitely 100 percent and uh the, the area i live in dc is a, is host to a bunch of people who who kind of inspire me on a daily basis there's this person one of my neighbors is lou she's 86 and she believes like she read somewhere uh what is it Six, six, 90 is the new 60. Like basically she says like right now, if you're 90, you really, you're really 60 years old. And by derivative of that, like, uh, if you're 60, you're really 30. She says it in a much more elegant manner, but she kind of, she kind of blows me away by just how much she does every day. Yeah. I, I know guys that are meaningfully older than I am and, and their line that is pretty common amongst them is, you got to keep moving to keep the old man at bay or keep the old man out. Yeah. Got to, got to use it or lose it, man. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Tom. Well, thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.